we've come a long way in these explanations of calm and insight. How far we have actually come in calm and insight depends on our own personal practice. The explanations are guidelines, they are a roadmap, and it is very important when using a roadmap to know exactly at which point we find ourselves. Because if we don't know what corner we're on, we have no way of using the best roadmap. It's up to each one of us to know our present whereabouts and thereby use this roadmap, these guidelines, to the best advantage. It's not necessary for all of us to use all of the guidelines. You can compare that to using a very good map, going in great detail, let's say going from the south southern point of California to the most northern one. Well, we've got to know at which point we're at so we can use that roadmap. It doesn't necessary that we use all of the instructions at the same time or that all of us are using the same instructions. Use the ones which are applicable to you. The last one we discussed, the last um, purification, was the uh, knowledge and vision of what is the path and what is not the path. And the next one is the knowledge and vision of what is the way, which is another word for path. It's a realization, an inner realization, and an understanding. And we have very distinct instructions by the Buddha. They couldn't be more explicit. And with those detailed instructions, we have many opportunities to practice in many different ways at different times. We could use, for instance, the 37 factors of enlightenment as our guideline. They only become factors of enlightenment when they have become powers. But they are factors that exist in all of us. And factors being faculties, we can cultivate them more by knowing which ones they are. We have discussed quite a number of them already. The four foundations of mindfulness, the four supreme efforts, the five spiritual faculties, which are the same as the five spiritual powers, seven factors of enlightenment, which I have mentioned, which are mindfulness at the top of it, then the investigation of dhammas, which means investigating into the three characteristics which I've talked about. Energy, rapture, 
tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. I've talked about all these aspects. So we have already gained a foothold in these 37 factors of enlightenment. There is the Noble Eightfold Path, which I haven't described in detail, and there are the four pathways to power. The four pathways to power, plus the Noble Eightfold Path, are probably the most explicit roadmap that we could find. The directions are clear, and they show us a way of using all our inner resources to mature, to mature and grow to a point where we are spiritually, mentally, emotionally independent and therefore free. We all have these resources. If we didn't, the Buddha would have been wasting the 45 years of his teaching ministry. He surely wouldn't have done that. He was teaching ordinary people like ourselves. The resources within are there. The potential is there. We very often get sidetracked into other priorities and because of that do not use those faculties to their best possible extent. We'll discuss the four pathways to power because they are often singled out as the one most important aspect of practicing to gain true insight. They're called the Idi Padas. Pada is a pathway. Idi is power. It's the same word in Pali, Idi, as the Sanskrit word Siddhi. The Sanskrit word Siddhi may have come to your notice at one time or another with the wrong connotation. Siddhis are considered to be supernatural powers. Or like um, elevating the body into the air and that type of thing which the Buddha shunned and said, those cities are not worthwhile cultivating. He used the word idi. Idis are something entirely different. They are only useful for the completion of the spiritual life. The four pathways to power have as their mental factor, which applies to all four of them, willpower. 
The more of that we have, the easier it is. If we haven't got much of it, we need to cultivate it. Willpower can also be equated to self-discipline. It can be equated to knowing where one is going and not deviating from that path. Now, our deviations are usually due to our desire for gratification of some sort or other. So if we have enough willpower to abstain from these desires, it will be much easier for us. However much willpower we can conjure up, that's how easy the path will be. The Buddha said there are four kinds of people on this path. One sort has a lot of dukkha, but has very quick results. Obviously, must be using dukkha as their teacher. Another lot has a lot of dukkha and very slow results. Then there are those that have a lot of sukha, a lot of joy and happiness, and very slow results because they have too many desires to gratify, therefore becoming happy in other ways. And then there are those that have a lot of joy in the path and quick results. So whichever one we belong to, that's entirely a matter of conjecture at this point. I hope we all belong to the last one, but <laughs> <laughs> who knows? And what is quick in the spiritual path is also a matter of conjecture. Maybe quick means 500 lifetimes. I don't know. Maybe it means five years or five months or five days. I don't know. It's all a matter of conjecture. So whatever willpower we've got, that will be a great assistance to us. These four pathways to power are all called concentration of. A concentration, first one is a concentration of intention. We really need to find out what is it, what we want to do in this life. What's the most important thing? Do we want to be comfortable? Do we want to be safe? Do we want to... Uh, have the things that we think are important? Or do we have one concentration of intention, and that is to spiritually mature, have spiritual emancipation and thereby full freedom? If that's our intention, we often need to let go of other things because we can only fulfill that intention if we give it enough space in our lives. There's a story of the time before the Buddha was enlightened. A woman by the name of 
Sujita went to the Buddha, who was not the Buddha at that time, who was a Bodhisattva, and offered him a bowl of milk rice and had put that in a golden bowl. And she said that she would like him also to keep that golden bowl, not just have the milk rice. And he ate the milk rice and accepted the golden bowl. And then he said he would throw that bowl into the river behind him. And if it would go downstream with the current, he would not become enlightened. But if it would float upstream against the current, then he would become enlightened. Well, obviously, it must have floated upstream. But whether this golden bowl actually did so or not, we have no way of knowing. But what the story actually tells us is something very important for our own lives. If we go along with the stream, with the current of public opinion, of our environment, of the people around us, of the mainstream of endeavor, it's much easier. We're going with the current and we're going downstream. We don't have to paddle very hard. Everybody else is going in the same direction and we're not going to get an undue amount of abuse, just the ordinary amount. But where do we end up? We end up in the mud flats like everybody else. Should we decide to go against the current upstream, we'll have to paddle much harder, be much more difficult. We'll be much more alone. There'll be far fewer trying this difficult path. Those that are going past us downstream might even call to us and say, what are you doing? such foolishness. Why are you going upstream against the current? Why are you sitting here getting knee pains? Can't you lie at the beach where it's comfortable? And we will find it much more difficult to keep that pathway going because the current of our own instincts and our own impulses plus the current of public opinion and all our environment will be against us. But if we finally do make it, where do we get to? We get to the source of our being, to the purity of the spring where it all started from. We'll have to make up our intentions one day quite clearly which way is it supposed to be as long as we're not quite sure we'll be going upstream a little ways and downstream another little way and since it's so much easier to go downstream we might be going two steps down and one up <coughs> and that's what happens when we get home and it all looks quite familiar again 
and that's what everybody's doing. If we don't have the concentration of attention, which I call the wholehearted commitment and the actual understanding what is important in this life, it's very easy to be sidetracked. It all looks perfectly normal. Everybody else is doing it. And it isn't quite as difficult. It's not totally enjoyable, but then what is totally enjoyable? So we get into that syndrome again of a little bit down and a little bit up. And every time we go up a little, we think, gee, that's nice. But it's difficult to keep it going. So it all falls by the wayside. With that, we won't have power. There's no power behind that. We're vacillating. We're unclear about the great spiritual priorities. The great spiritual priorities which have existed in humanity ever since we have known any records about it. The great spiritual priorities are existing now. There might be fewer people interested in them, but that is also a matter of conjecture. In actual fact, they're the only salvation that mankind has. There is no other. Because going downstream is an ever-recurring and always unsatisfactory incident. We just keep going downstream. It's always the same stream. And it always ends up in the same mudflats. But we'll have to see that for ourselves. Nobody can convince another, the least of all the Buddha. He just said, what are the pathways to power? He didn't try to convince anybody. In fact, he was so skillful in the way he spoke that through questioning the listeners, he was often able to convince them against their wishes. So if we have clear-cut intention, then we have already passed the first hurdle. The hurdles are manifold, and the worst of it are we ourselves. We are standing in our own way. All the things that we want, all the things that we think we need, all the things that we think are due, all that stands in our way. The fears of the annihilation, all that is the limitation that we put upon ourselves. The ability to be totally free and the wish for it exists in everyone. Intention is our first step. And it pays to sit down with a piece of paper and pencil, pen, and write down what my, are my intentions for the next six months. Never mind anything further than that. Even 
three months. What are my intentions? What's the priority? And having written it down, looking at it and seeing, are they really the most important things to do? And if so, why? And if that works out to be the most important thing to do, by all means, do it. If there's any question about it, try again. What we write down on a piece of paper and can look at seems to have greater impact on the mind because the thoughts are so fleeting. They are always disappearing again. Once we get used to checking ourselves, we can check our attentions daily, hourly, minutely, in detail. We may be able to check up all the time whether our intentions are still the same and going in the right direction or whether we've all of a sudden lost track. It's very easy to lose track. We just get caught up in all this hustle and bustle, all the things that one thinks one must do. So checking it up over and over again. The first time the two Lamas, Lama Jeshi and Lama Zopa, came to the West was in 1974, I believe, to Australia. I went to their meditation course, and their English was fractured, to say the least. And uh, Lama Jeshi kept saying, check up, check up. And I was wondering what he meant. Now I know. Keep on checking up. He was quite right, but I didn't know what it was all about. The second step on the pathways to power is our concentration of energy, which goes together with our concentration of intention. Where are we putting our most energy? Are we dissipating it? Are we using it for unnecessary things? Or are we actually putting it in the stream of that endeavor where the greatest benefit will accrue to ourselves and others. Again, a matter of introspection. Now, we do waste a lot of energy, no doubt about it. We are probably most wasteful energy users that ever were, and that applies to our natural resources, and that applies to our human resources within ourselves. We waste our energy on useless thinking. And every meditator knows that. Nobody is exempt. Useless thinking. Now, why do we do that? Because we're not so clear and not so determined about our intention. We allow ourselves to be wasteful. Now, obviously, we also live in a wasteful society. So our discipline as far as frugality towards energy is concerned is rather fragmentary. 
So we have no real understanding of what it means to conserve energy. Should we one day run out of our oil resources or of our foreign exchange or something like that, then we'll know what it means to run out of our energy resources. But in our mind, we haven't even equated it to that. And yet it's exactly the same thing. If we were a little more frugal and a little more understanding of this enormous power that exists within our own mind, because, for one thing, it is part of universal consciousness. And the power in a concentrated mind, which is not sidetracked, is enormous. So if we were just to become aware of that and realize that we need not waste any of its power, but could conserve it and use it to the best advantage, we may actually find that that helps our meditation. Because we are interested, every human being is interested, to doing the best thing they can for themselves. We just, unfortunately, often don't know what's the best thing for ourselves. We often do those things which are quite detrimental to our well-being. But if we become aware of the fact that the conservation of mental energy is the most important conservation project that we could possibly entertain, we might actually do it. And when we do it, we will find that we can concentrate. And with that concentration, gain renewed resource of energy. And then with that, have the ability to go along this path without obstruction. It depends how we look upon ourselves. If we look upon ourselves as this individual person who has certain desires and likes and dislikes and needs to be catered for and needs to be um, looked after, then of course we won't do such a thing. This is the same way we have squandered the resources on this planet. I read somewhere one of these magazines that seemed to take an interest in these dire predictions that by the year 2056 we're going to have to we're going to be completely bereft of natural resources it probably isn't true but through statistics uh, they have come up to with that particular number but what is true is that we're squandering them that we're wasting them and we're doing exactly the same as our mental energy no difference at all. It's a natural resource of the greatest value. There's nothing more valuable than mental energy. It has the greatest impact on anything that exists. And because of our ignorance of its immense value and our lack of attention to the preservation of it, we are wasting its abilities.
Now, if we look at it that way, we may have a helpful support system. We ourselves are a natural resource. Sometimes people who go and do some workshops are called resource persons. Well, we're all a resource persons. We are a natural resource. What else is there on this planet other than the natural environment and all the stuff we've put on it? We are the most valuable natural resource. So if we don't look after the one natural resource that we actually can be concerned with, namely ourselves, but in a manner which is productive, there's no way any conservation program is ever going to come to fruit. The concentration of energy has the result that we gain access to mind power. And mind power does not mean power over others. It does not mean that we become someone who is dealing with other people out of a power situation. It just means having power over ourselves. And the mind power which we can generate then can be seen as the greatest power for good. So our energy which is limited can of course be added to and regenerated if we don't waste it. Thinking is very tiring and so is talking. And we do a lot of it. Even if we don't talk so much in this course, we certainly think. And we think at times when it's totally unnecessary. Now at this point in time it's necessary. But at other times, it's totally unnecessary. There's nothing to think about. What is there to think about? It's all happening anyway. Nobody cares at all whether we think or not. So why don't we stop? Why don't we just become concerned with being instead of thinking? Just be there. And if outside of meditation, and if we practice a bit of non-thinking outside of meditation, it will be much easier to practice non-thinking in meditation. Practicing non-thinking outside of meditation can either denote mindfulness of the physical action, it can denote Mindfulness of a sense contact without reacting to it. It can denote being mindful of a sensation or a feeling without reaction or thinking about it. Just noticing. It can be just being aware of peacefulness, just being aware of 
sitting anything at all without thinking about it. The more we practice non-thinking when it isn't necessary in daily living, the easier it becomes to meditate and the less we squander our natural resource of mind energy. Energy in this respect is always mind energy. It doesn't mean physical energy. Physical energy, of course, is a result of mind energy, but very much depend upon the condition of the physical body. Now the next one, the third one, is the concentration of mind, which actually means the concentration that we attain in meditation. That is a pathway to power. And that power needs to be used for the shedding of, the letting go of all that which is external, peripheral, and strictly made conjectures or convolutions. The concentration of mind, which is what we've been aiming at and working for, in the meditation becomes powerful when it is possible to do it at will. Which means that we become so skilled at it that we don't lose it when we go home. Now, obviously, everyone will have improved their concentration in the meditation while being here. But that has to be retained. Otherwise, we have this situation of going downstream and then drip it up and downstream and drip it up, coming to another course. To retain that means continuous practice and also means practicing in all the other ways which we have discussed. The concentration of the mind is, in Pali, equal to Samasamadhi, which is the last step on the Noble Eightfold Path, which means right concentration, Samadhi is concentration, Sama is right, and concerns the meditative absorption. It is a power without which the 37 factors of enlightenment do not become complete. They are also mentioned in the seven factors of enlightenment. The uh, mind has to have that kind of strength. It has to have that kind of power in it because shedding, letting go, is an action. It's not a passivity. It's not a non-action. When we want to let go of something, we have to do something. We have to open up and actually let go. So we need a powerful mind to be able to let go of those things within which we have believed so far to be essential for our well-being. Most of them are myths, 
they are created through desire, the ideas which are, we think are essential to our well-being. To let go is an, sometimes quite a difficult undertaking. It takes willpower and mind power. So concentration of mind, we could say, is actually a um, double reaffirmation of the same thing which we have been practicing. And if we recognize the value of the first two, the intention and the preservation of energy, it will be much easier for us to get to that concentration. The last one is the concentration of investigation. Now that concentration of investigation concerns exactly that what we've already been talking about, namely the investigation into the phenomena. The three phenomena of universal existence without which we do not gain insight. In fact, in Buddhist terminology, the word insight means those three characteristics. That's all it ever means. Everything else is an insight on the way. Insight is always concerned with impermanence, non-satisfactoriness, and qualitiveness. Impermanence is easily accepted on a very superficial level, and it needs renewed investigation over and over again until it becomes so imbued within us that we recognize this body and mind as being transparent, translucent, not solid, no substance, just continuous in its movement. And because of that, we no longer have it as our anchor. As long as we have this body as our anchor, as our life support system, without which we would feel bereft, we are clinging to something which has no intrinsic value. It only has the value of keeping life going so that mind can become enlightened. But this is certainly not the only opportunity we have for that. But when we consider this, the support system to which we have to cling, we will never be without fear because we know very well we can't keep it. And we also know very well that we have absolutely no way of knowing how long we're going to keep it. And that fear makes us very unfree. It binds us to a conglomeration of bits and pieces held together by the water element, surrounded by skin, which can never be considered to be really of great value. 
It doesn't have any absolute and intrinsic truth in it other than that we can see and learn from it to let go. That investigation of impermanence must bring us eventually to that point where we don't hang on for dear life. Because dear life is just life. The same goes for the investigation into dukkha, non-satisfactoriness. When we have investigated that and have come to terms with it, we know that dear life is not dear. We lose our rose-colored glasses, our constant excuse system, the idea that we could make it right if we were to try to make it right a little harder. All of that investigation can go on within us. We don't need any outside conditions for it. We don't even need a meditation course. We need nothing except an intelligent mind and the concentration of intention to see absolute truth. And the substance that we believe to be or that we believe exists needs to be examined. Where is it? What does it look like? What does it smell like? How does it taste? Can we touch it? Can we feel it? Which is probably the most important. Where is this substance? If we can't feel it, if we can't touch it, why do we think there is one? What is it that we're trying to protect? This investigation when it is concentrated enough and has the other three support systems of the pathway to power, leads us to freedom. Now, often people think that this is a loss of something. We're losing something. Well, I've said many times we're losing an illusion. But what do we lose, actually, other than an illusion? We're losing a system of clinging, a system of gratification, a system which, because of this clinging, creates fear, and because of that fear, we are never totally satisfied. We're never totally at ease. That ease is always escaping us, and we try to find it somehow, somewhere. It certainly can't be found in the body. The body never has ease for any length of time, no matter how young and strong it might still be. And that too is impermanent, isn't it, youth and strength? Although we try to deny that too. Where do we find ease? Only in being totally free of all impediments. And everything we cling to is an impediment. If I were to cling to this mat here, I'd have to carry it around with me, wouldn't I? 
That'd be quite an impediment, wouldn't it? Anything we cling to is an impediment. And if we use these pathways to power to the best advantage that we can at this point in time, we will feel freer as we go along. And that will then, of course, give us another incentive to practice even more intentionally. The intention, which is the first step, needs to become very habitual. If it is habitual, then we don't have to re-arouse it all the time. And again, we're saving a lot of mental energy. And if we then know that we need to preserve our mental energy, we will try very hard to be without discursive thinking when there's no need for it. And our concentration in meditation will work much better. And our investigation, which is insight, or the path to insight, will also have sort of oiled rollers under it so that with what we have already understood. Contentment is necessary. Self-satisfaction is damaging because it prevents us from practicing. To be content with what we have already gained on this path is very helpful and eases our path, but not to the extent where we think we've already done enough. So these are four pathways to power which belong to the 37 factors of enlightenment which are probably the um, most succinct statement that we can find to put together the Buddha's detailed explanations. That's enough for this evening. You can ask some questions if you like. Everything perfectly clear or perfectly unclear? Yes. Okay, the four foundations of mindfulness, the four supreme efforts. Okay. Then there's a noble eightfold path. Then there's the five spiritual faculties, which are the same as the five spiritual powers, but are considered to be ten. Then we have the four pathways to power and the seven factors of enlightenment. To come out right? Okay. <laughs>
to clinging to non-attachment. Yes, it's a typical philosophical statement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, all clinging is detrimental. Um, The Buddha said, Nibbana is the is attained through non-clinging. And we say that we desire to practice to get rid of all desires, which is, I think, a clear and straightforward statement. And Nagarjuna is not in our tradition anyway. <laughs> so we don't have to deal with him <laughs> if we don't want to. <laughs> yes. That's right. Anything else? Right, everything quite clear? Wonderful. Please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Let compassion arise in your heart for all the difficulties you ever have had in your life or any you may have now. A compassionate feeling for the person that is closest to you, that you can love and care for through this compassion. Now extend your compassion to the person sitting nearest you, knowing that everyone has dukkha, no matter who it is. For all the difficulties that person may ever have had or may be having now, and with that compassion, love and concern can arise. Extend your compassion to everyone here. Feeling with 
everybody's difficulties, everybody's disappointments, unfulfilled expectations. With that compassion, love can arise. Let compassion arise for your parents, their difficulties, their disappointments, their losses. Let this compassion fill you and reach out to them with it. And let love arise because of it. Think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you. And let compassion fill your heart for them. And then reach out to them with your compassion. For their hurts and their worries, their fears, all their difficulties. Let love arise from that compassion. Now have compassion for all your friends, realizing and recognizing that they too have the same difficulties as you yourself have. And that compassion will bring true love and friendship. Reach out to them with your compassion.
think of your neighbors, the people you work with, the people you meet in the street, in the shops, at school, in the college, anyone you see here and there, recognize their difficulties, their dukkha, their hurts, and let compassion arise in you and reach out to them with that. Think of anyone whom you might find difficult. Think of that person's dukkha. Unfulfilled expectations, hurts, worries and fears. Let compassion arise in you for that person too. Which might make love come to the fore. And now think of humanity as a whole. People in all the different countries. Different races, different looks, different ambitions. Just picture them all over the globe and then recognize each one's dukkha, each one's striving, each one's fear. Open your heart as wide as you can so that compassion can flow from it to people near and far, as far as the power of your compassion will reach, touching people's hearts, joining us all together as one great family of human beings, recognizing each other's difficulties, and accepting the ignorance which causes them 
and having compassion for each other. Now put your attention back on yourself. Feel compassion for anything that's causing you difficulty now. Giving yourself the love and care that compassion arouses. Let that fill you, drench you, and surround you. May beings everywhere feel compassionate towards each other. 